So chapter 8, if you're there with me in verse 1, say amen. amen. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne of God. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon. And a third of the stars. So that... A third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So, Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord God. We thank you most of all, Lord, that chapter 8, for those of us who are saved and know you, born again by your spirit, that chapter 8 is not a reality for us, Lord, that we will not experience, but we will view from heaven. And so, Lord, but we do thank you that you're opening up your scripture to us. Lord, I pray that you would use it for those of us who are saved to give us a sense of necessary urgency, Lord God, because of the times that we live in to preach the gospel to those who need to hear it. And for those of us who have gathered, who those who may not know you in this room, Lord God, I pray that through this you would reveal your truth to them and also your heart and your will and your plan, uh, Lord God, that it is so wonderful and so uh, much of a blessing if they would just simply turn to you, Lord God, that they would escape these things. And Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we say together. Amen. 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 And so as you take your seat in chapter... Eight, we see a lot of wonderful things of which I was going to give you an outline, but I really realize that I won't work far into it. Um, we'll look at the prelude to his wrath, at least today, in chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, when he opened the seventh seal. Now, I want to remind you that in the inauguration 
my terms, I call it the inauguration of Lord Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in chapter 5, you remember that, uh, the, that John was shown a scroll in the hand of him who sat on the throne, Father God, right? Y'all remember that? Um, it had seven seals to it. Now, you remember the angel cried with a loud voice. Now, if you're just joining us, you go back and you check me in chapter 5, okay? But the angel and a strong angel cried with a mighty voice, who is worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of him who sits on the throne, it was in his right hand, and to open the scroll and to look upon it. And if you remember, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of the Father and to open it and look at it. And John began to weep. Remember, he began to weep because the implication is that the reality, if no one is worthy, then man is doomed eternally in sin. And they, one of the elders said, hey, John, don't cry. Behold, a lamb has prevailed to take the scroll and to open it. And so then John saw a lamb as though he had been slain from the foundation of the world. Y'all remember this, right? Y'all remember the rules pre-COVID days. Let's, go, let's get back right, okay? <clears throat> and, all right, so Jesus steps forth and he takes the scroll out of the hand of his father. Now remember, this scroll, because it's mentioned here again at the beginning of chapter 8, if you remember... This particular scroll represents a couple of things. This scroll represents, number one, title deed to planet Earth. If you remember, when Adam fell into sin, he lost, if you will, his dominion over the Earth in the way that God originally intended for man to have. You remember that? And so the first Adam sold us all into sin, but through the second or last Adam, Jesus Christ, all are made alive in him, right? And we receive the forgiveness of sin. And so since Adam fell into sin until the moment that Jesus exercises his authority, Satan, who is called the little God, little G of this world, has, if you will, had a temporary control over the things that are going on as much as the Lord has allowed, at least I should say that. We get a glimpse of that when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness because Satan takes him to a pinnacle of the mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, if you would fall down and worship me, all these would be yours. And Jesus simply said, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written. But he never said, Satan, you're, you're lying because to some extent, Satan did have control, if you will. He is the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, which is why when you look into the world today, and stay with me, you see horrific things happening, and they will continue until Jesus Christ rules and reigns. We're going to look at all of that today. And so right now, Satan is still loose, which is why we're not in the kingdom. The kingdom has not begun on earth, okay? Are y'all with me? God's kingdom has not come. Okay, good. So Satan had temporary control, if you will. So to one degree, Jesus, um, when Jesus had victory at the cross, but then he allowed the church age, which would develop. But now at this point, as he takes the scroll, he is, if you will, taking the title deed and he is beginning to exercise his rule and authority. Okay? So that's part of it. And then the other part is also the will of God, if you will. Like you may have a will from your, your parent when they passes um, and, and, and an inheritance comes. And so literally the Lord Jesus has inheriting all that the Father has for him. So therefore, this is a legal document and a legal transaction 
which is taking place as Jesus begins to open the scroll. Does that make sense for everybody? All right, that is extremely important. Now let's review the seals, though, because this scroll, this legal document, and, and some of the ancient documents that they found are set up this way, it has seven seals. And so it's almost when you pop or open one seal, it reveals a part of it. You follow me? Then you open the next seal, and it reveals more of what's going on. And so Jesus has been opening these seals, and as he opens them, some things have been unfolding. Stay with me for a moment. He opened the first seal in chapter 6. And if you remember, there was a rider on the white horse. Raise your hand if you remember that. I want to make sure you're with me. Okay. And we told you that the rider of the white horse is an imposter, if you will. He is the man of sin, the Bible calls him. The son of perdition, the Bible calls him. And he embodies all that the spirit of Antichrist is. Remember the Bible tells us, John says, that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. Right? Okay, and so there have been many antichrists through the ages, whether it was Nimrod or the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon or Egypt or Persia or Greece or Rome, uh, whether it was uh, Hitler, if you will, or whoever it might have been throughout time, there have been the spirit of antichrist working in many different people throughout the ages, but this one who is coming embodies all that the spirit of Antichrist is, as he's literally Satan incarnate, if you will, upon the earth. And he went forth to conquer, conquering and to conquer, literally to conquer the globe and to rule upon men. He will have a global government, if you remember, we've talked about these things. His global government he will take control of will give him the ability, listen, to cause all who, whether small or great, to take a mark in their right hand or their forehead. And if you don't take that mark, then you will not be able to participate in the global economic system or social system or anything and would potentially lose your life. And if you come to faith in Jesus Christ and refuse that, you most likely will lose your life. So if you're here today and you're not saved not walking with the Lord and you're playing around and you find yourself in that time, this is going to be the thing that you will face. And so he is going to have a global government. But remember what I said, in order, because this time period, which we call the tribulation period, or it's called a time of Jacob's trouble, or it's called the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, right? I can, you know, all of these things that we know it by. And it, so seven years is a very short period of time, isn't it? It's a very short period of time. So in order for him to have a global government to the magnitude that he is going to have, then in order for that to happen, he is going to have to begin to see that global government Well, we or the world will have to see all of the things beginning to come to place to allow for the framework at least of a global government on that scale. It has to be in place going into this tribulation period in order for all of these things to take place as fast as they do. Okay, I'm trying to remember where I'm supposed to stop. I think I stop at 11, okay? <clears throat> so, in order for that to happen, there must be a global government in place. Now, look, global on all scales. Now, right now, the world is moving, as I've been telling you over and over and over, to a global society, a global government, a global health system, a global uh, political system, a global military structure. All of these things are already being built and put in place as Satan is trying to move in that direction. And man, as I look at the world, it's almost as if God is beginning already to, if you will, beginning to slowly remove his restraining force. Now stay with me. 
One of the things that I think, well, let me back up. How many of you know, as people talk about prophecy, today is just going to be a little different. I just got to deal with prophecy, that people are always wondering, where is America in Bible prophecy? Have you heard that before? How many of you even wondered that before? Yeah, we wonder, where's America in Bible prophecy? Because, see, what happens, in my opinion, as I look at the history, as, as I've been able to look at history and, and, and everything that we see going on in the world even now, that in order to move to a true global system that will allow for Antichrist, one of the things I think has to happen is that the enemy has to figure out how to get America and the blessing that America has been to the world out of the way. Because you know why? Here's why. Because America, if you will, has been the police force of the world. Right now, we got soldiers on the border of North and South Korea. And the only way folks ain't trying to blow each other up over there is because the United States uh, Army is there. And, you know, they can just basically pull rank at any time. Or whether it be Iraq or Afghanistan or all, all through the Middle East and different places within the world where America has occupied and, and kind of, if you will, monitored the whole thing, you know, and kind of kept things at bay to some degree because that's what America has been doing for quite a, quite a long period of time, no matter what your opinion of it is. But America being in place would hinder a global system coming to play in the way that it would have to come to play in order for the rider of the white horse to begin to accomplish what he is trying to accomplish. And there are even now those who are of spirit of Antichrist and don't even realize it, who are bent on changing America. See, America has to change. The America that we know has to change or be removed for this system to happen. And that's why you got some today who are not only trying to defund the police, which is the dumbest thing you could ever imagine, because if you really want a society without the police, I trust me, you don't want that. There may be some bad ones that need to be removed, but you want good police in place. And that is why, by the way, if you were watching on Wednesday night, that um, I was telling you that the police chief in the department here, I spoke with him and one of the lieutenants, want to support us gathering and bringing the churches together in the square to pray over our community. We've already begun having conversations with other pastors, and that's probably going to happen either on the 27th, which is Saturday after next, or potentially the fourth, as churches will come together in the square to pray. Isn't that amazing? Over our community. And, and Christians can gather with a heart to focus on the Lord in the times that we live in, and that is so needful. So it's stupid to defund the police. I'm just going to be very frank about it. I don't really care um, how that strikes you. That is not where we want to go. But there are those who not only want to defund the police, they actually want to dismantle the United States military. Because if you get the United States military out of the way and you change the fundamental way that America, and I'm looking at men in the room who have served in the military, you change America completely. And that's what has to happen for this system, I believe, that we're looking at to come into place. So we saw the ride of the white horse. We know where that's going. Then we saw the ride of the second horse. Remember, the ride of the second horse took peace from the earth. Y'all remember this, right? Man, you, can, you, you think it, it, we was reading this last time we went through the book of Revelation, which was probably somewhere around 2010. And, you know, what, is it, what, is, what would it be like for peace to leave the earth? Well, now looking at this in 2020, it's almost like, oh, we got a glimpse <laughs> of what it might look like. You know, after 2020, anything can happen. I mean, 
you know, if I looked in the sky and saw Jesus, Elijah, and Moses in the clouds talking, I'd be like, well, it's 2020, you know. <laughs> yeah, the Ark of the Covenant came, I mean, the Ark of Noah came floating down the street. Man, it's 2020. I wouldn't even be shocked anymore. Um, so peace being taken from the earth, we see how quickly something like that could take place. And what we're talking about at the beginning of the tribulation is on a grander scale than what we are seeing now. The ride of the next horse brought, if you will, he brought in uh, pestilence and, and famine, if you will. Well, not pestilence, famine, but he brought in hunger and famine uh, due to shortages uh, of things that are common, you know, and, 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 th- and people are not able to get things they need. And if they can get it, it, the cost is extremely high. And so you begin to see hunger on the earth. And then the rider of the next uh, horse comes forward. And when that happens, we see that death follows and one-fourth of the globe dies. And if you remember, if we could do the math, you can go back and listen. We, we calculated that that could be at, at minimum 2.1 billion people dying on the globe in a very short period of time, which would be devastating in and of itself to the earth. Could you imagine that? And so we've seen all of these things. And then when the opening of the fifth seal, remember, there was a memorial service in heaven. Y'all remember this, right? Where those who had been lost their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ during this time period, say, Lord, how long before you avenge our blood? Remember, he said, he gave them white robes and says, you just got to rest a, a little while longer until the number of your brethren that will die like you did is complete, which reminds us that God always knows when it's done, when it's time to make a change. He knows. He said to uh, Abraham back in Genesis that your, your, your kids, your children are going to go into the slavery into Egypt for 400 years because the sins and the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. He knew exactly uh, where he was in his time scale. He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, we will have this age. Blindness has happened to Israel in part until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That, may, that means that God knows exactly how many he is going to be able to save out of this current age that we're living in. That means God can look at society and see exactly where it is because he is in complete understanding because he knows the end from the beginning and he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means that he knows every single person that belongs to him him before they're even born. So the timing of these things are in his hands, and that's what we're going to look at. I love that effect. <laughs> Some of y'all jump like, oh, here we are. <clears throat> I love when that train goes by like that. And so we begin to see all of these things unfold, and we realize that God is in complete control of this. And I want to come back to this in a moment. But as we think about the timing, there's several things we need to understand. Let me stay a little bit on task. And so as we look at the text, it says, And when he opened the seventh seal, when the completion of him opening these seals happens, in other words, Jesus now has opened all seven seals. Seven is the number of completion. He has taken this legal document, and he has, if you will, put this transaction in motion of which there is no going back to. In other words, what is about to happen now is that the level or the intensity of wrath is about to change until the end comes. You see, the opening of the first six seals, in that we saw the wrath of the Lamb as a result of him, if you will, allowing things to happen, allowing the rider to, to ride, allowing uh, the, the rider to take peace, 
All of these things, the angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds at the end of chapter 6, which in and of itself was the removal, if you will, of a protection factor. You remember I said if you hold the winds back, you change the moisture levels on the earth. You, you change the systems that have been put in place for our provision and protection. You're basically restraining those. You follow me? So, so far, all we've seen is Jesus open seals and hold things back and allow things to happen. It's almost he's taking his protective hand off, allowing things to begin to happen on the earth. All of that is different from what's about to happen next. You see, now as he opens the seventh seal, we're about to move into a time where the direct wrath of God is about to be poured out upon humanity and upon a world who has rejected him all of this time. Because if you notice in, in verse 1, it says, when he opened the seventh seal, notice there was a silence in heaven for about a half hour. Now, the first time I taught through this book, I made the mistake of quoting J. Vernon McGee, who gave a reason for why he thought heaven was quiet for, for 30 minutes, and I won't make that mistake again. Some of you have been studying the Bible for a long time know what I'm talking about. Um, I don't think it was that at all. It, it's silence in heaven for about a half hour. Now, when Terry King Floyd came through eastern North Carolina, it was probably somewhere around uh, 1998 or 99, I forget, but I was living in eastern North Carolina at that time, and uh, it was hitting that night. It was maybe a Friday night, a lot of rain. There was a lot of flooding with Hurricane Floyd. Anybody live through Hurricane Floyd? Remember Hurricane Floyd? And it was a lot of rain, a lot of wind. And the next morning, because I remember I had to deliver blankets to the church where people were, were spending the night at the church. Uh, and the next morning, you got, when I got, you got up and the sun came out, you could see the hurricane. And I woke up when it was finally light and I could look out the window. All the trees were leaning this way. And it was hitting hard, you know. And then all of a sudden, the eye of that hurricane came directly over us. And everything went silent. It was the most eerie silence that I had ever experienced. I walked outside. There were no birds. Everything was hunkered down, and there was this weird-looking, hazy yellow light and, and with an overcast, but everything was real still. And about 30 minutes later, all you know what broke loose again, and, and I looked out again, and everything was leaning this way now, you know, because <laughs> the hurricane is circular, you know. And, and I remember as I look at this, this silence in heaven is not what you think it is. It's the silence before God's wrath comes upon the world. Why is it silent in heaven for about 30 minutes before God pours out his wrath? Well, here's why. You have to remember that the Bible says that God is merciful and loving. And the Bible says that God desires no one to perish, but all to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. We have to remember the Bible says that God did not create hell for human beings, for his creation, for his people. It was created for Satan and his angels that fell with him. You follow what I'm saying? He doesn't desire anybody to go to hell. God gets a bum rap from the world. Everybody looks at the world and says, well, why would God allow? If you read the scriptures, what you hear God saying throughout the scriptures is he's pleading with Israel to turn to me. Haven't I been a good father? 
Haven't I provided? And Isaiah, I've nurtured you. I planted you like a choice vine in a perfect field where I removed everything and I, I hedged it. I put protection. I've done all of these things. Why have you turned from me? All the way through the scriptures, you see him pleading. In the New Testament, Jesus, even with Judas, who he knew he couldn't save because the scriptures had to be fulfilled, yet right up to the last minute, his, his heart towards Judas is tender. The God we, we talk about is a loving, merciful God. You see, when in my house, if my wife cries, everybody's concerned, but, you know, ladies tend to cry more than men. I'm just being honest, okay? If I cry, everybody's like, oh, my Lord, what's going on? <laughs> Dad's crying. My son's like, it's, what's wrong? Do I need to get the gun? What's happening? You know? <laughs> Because if he sees me cry, there's a problem in the house. It's like the, the security and the peace in the house is just like, uh-oh, you know, there's a real, real problem now. And I think there's silence in heaven because God is about to do what he's been warning about for all of these years. And it's not something that brings him joy. He's about to cast his direct wrath upon creation. And what we have to understand is not only is a, he's a merciful God and a loving God, but he's also a righteous and he's a just God. And as he hears the, the prayers, which we'll have to get into next week, coming before his throne, these prayers, if you will, both are comforting to him and reminding him of the justness of what he has to do. And this is what's coming upon the world. And we have to understand some things for a minute prophetically and speaking about timing, just bear with me for a moment. We always talk about, you know, 2,000 years ago, this happened. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. 2,000 years ago, and, and, and there hadn't been a nation of Israel for 2,000 years and all of a sudden. And what we got to realize is we, we've been rounding up. Do you realize that all the scholars, all the Bible scholars, you know, you can look at all the ones you want to look, look at. They're all going to tell you that they believe that Jesus died on the cross and the date's going to fall somewhere between AD 36, excuse me, AD 26 and AD 36, okay? Most scholars will narrow it down to somewhere between AD 30 and AD 33. And then the majority of them, the ones that, that agree, believe that it was April, Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. Now, we don't know that for sure at all. I only bring that up to point to the fact that we've been rounding up and that the truth of the matter is that we will celebrate 2,000 years of the Christian church and about somewhere between 7 to 16 years from now, somewhere between 2026 and 2036, we'll finally celebrate the 2,000 years of the Christian church. So 2,000 years ago, somewhere in that time frame, it'll be 2,000 years from uh, the time that Jesus, of course, died on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the grave. For 40 days, he showed himself to his disciples. And then on the 50th day after Passover was Pentecost, and on Pentecost, the Spirit fell upon the Christian church. And the church of 120 exploded into 3,120 in one day, and the church was birthed and began to turn the world upside down again. We haven't hit that 2,000-year mark yet. But it's coming up very soon. And it's very interesting as I begin to think about that. Just stay with me for a moment because I need to, I need to challenge you prophetically. 
You know, you think about the patterns that God has put in place from the beginning, from creation, from Genesis chapter 1, where God says that for six days he labored, right, in creation, and on the seventh day he what? Rested. That's right, good. If y'all ain't answered that, I'm like, man, I got I to gotta stop. He puts that pattern in the earth. He says to them, hey, look, I want you to labor for six days, people who believe, Israel, and on the sixth day, I want, seventh day, I want you to rest. So we know that's in Israel. Even now, the church, we realize that, you know, there's a day. We just, the first day of the week is our day to reflect on the Lord and worship. Amen? And enjoy our day because God is good. It's, it's put in us. Not only beyond that, it was put in their agriculture. They were taught to let the land rest on the seventh day. We know that. In fact, my grandfather did that because he went to Tuskegee Institute. And, you know, where he knew George Washington Carver and he he studied it about he was teaching African-American farmers at the time who had land how to maximize the productivity of the land. And, you know, my grandfather rotated his garden. Now, when I say garden, my grandfather's garden wasn't like most of your gardens. His garden was bigger than the parking lot. You know, it was a it was a mini farm, of course. And um, he would rotate it. It's been put in us to do that. We know the land produces more. And, and if you let it rest the seventh year over time, then it will if you just work it every year. We know that. God gave them manna. He said, you, you pick your manna for six days and don't pick, don't try to hoard it up. You don't have to because I'm your father and I'm going to make sure you got enough every day. And even on the sixth day, there'll be enough for the seventh day. It's amazing how God uh, did all of that throughout the Old Testament. There's a pattern that he's put in motion. It's very interesting. Let me share a prophecy with you out of Hosea. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15 on the screen. Um, just stay with me. In Hosea chapter 5, notice um, the Lord says, I will return again to my place till they, Israel, he's speaking, till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. You know, and, and, and scholars struggle with these prophecies. Then in chapter Six of Hosea, I'm doing it in a different order this service, uh, Eric. In chapter 6 of Hosea, notice he says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn. You know, he's punished. He's, 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 uh, he's, he's, you know, disciplined. But he will heal us, notice. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Notice this. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we might live in his sight. And scholars struggle with this because they mostly all agree that it hasn't been fulfilled. Yes, there's hints towards the Lord Jesus dying on the cross and rising up on the third day. But in that context of the book of Hosea, God is looking at Israel as the wife that committed adultery. Y'all remember that, right? Y'all know the book of Hosea. God is dealing with Israel. Hey, I'm going to leave them at some point until they acknowledge what they've done and they call upon me and I will return. And they'll realize that I'm going to bless them. And, and, and listen, after two days, I will return and raise them up on the third day. Jesus said to Israel this in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, also on your screen. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, Jesus says this, and then 40 years later, Rome surrounds Jerusalem and destroys the city and, and the sanctuary. 
He says, so see, your house is left to you desolate. Then he says this in verse 39. He says, for I say to you, Jesus saying to them, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the, the tribulation period is all about after the church is removed, the world is being judged, but God is revealing himself to Israel. We saw 144,000 of them get sealed in chapter 7. And they will call out for their Messiah. Zechariah says when they see him, they will ask him, where did you get these scars? And he'll, he'll say in the house of my friends, and they will mourn. You know, God is dealing with Israel to bring them to, if you will, salvation and understanding who he is. He has a plan that is unfolding. And we have to understand this. You see, it was seeing that his pattern is very interesting because if you do the math, in the garden... Adam sinned. When did he sin? We're not exactly sure, but we know he had a son named Seth when he was 130 years old. So somewhere between day one and day uh, and year, year one and year 130, Adam, has, uh, Adam commits this sin in the garden. God prophesies at that moment that there will be a seed of the woman, which means virgin birth, y'all with me, who will come forth and he will deal with all this wrong. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is going to take away the rule of the serpent of Satan and his manipulation within the world, and he will reign, and he will deal with this. Now, some 2,000 years later, you can look at Genesis chapter 5, 4, and 5, and do the math, Genesis chapter uh, 10 and 11, and do the math. Some 2,000 years later, God calls a man named Abram out of the east, and he says, with the covenant, he says, I am going to, from your seed, bless the whole earth. Changes his name to Abraham. And he begins the process of which he is going to create the family, the nation, the vehicle in which he would bring that seed that he prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which would be Messiah, which is Jesus Christ, into the world. Y'all with me? Well, you can do the math. Some 2,000 years forward, Jesus shows up and he fulfills that prophecy by dying on the cross and having victory over Satan and his work. And then some 2,000 years forward, here we are about to celebrate the 2,000-year anniversary of this church he's created, which is a beautiful thing. And many old Jewish rabbis believed that there would be a 6,000-year work of God and then a seventh-year rest because the millennial reign of Jesus Christ for 1,000 years is called in the Old Testament a rest, and it will be a rest. Why will it be a rest? Well, just read it. You got the lion and the lamb hanging out, and the lion ain't tempted to cut steaks out of the lamb. That, to me, is very interesting. You got the child can play with the poisonous snake, if the snake's even poisonous at that point, and, and not have to worry about the child being bitten. There won't be death. A child will be 200 years old and still be considered a child. And Jesus will reign from a temple in Jerusalem with a rod of iron. Therefore, there will be no sin and there will be nothing that taints or defiles in the earth at that time. And all will go to Jerusalem to worship him. David himself will have a portion of the city and he will be kind of like the mayor of the city. But Jesus will rule the earth from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And for that 1,000 years, everything rests. The Bible says even the earth is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, who are the sons of God? Well, those who are born of the Spirit of God. The Bible says for those who have, have received the Spirit of God, he's given us power to be the sons of God. That's us. Amen? Sons and daughters of God. There's a pattern. 
I'm not saying for sure that we're about to be out of here. I'm just simply saying that we need to just look at what the Word says and be encouraged that we're the only generation in the Christian church who can say that we've seen these things. You see, a lot of scholars, they read in the Olivet Discourse, y'all bear with me, where they say, when Jesus says, look at the fig tree and know that when it blooms, these things are near, right? So all scholars say, ah, the fig tree must be Israel. And so as soon as Israel becomes a nation, that generation won't pass until all these things are taking place. But actually, when I read it, I see something a little different. Luke's gospel, and there's a difference, but Matthew and Mark, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives talking to his disciples. And Luke's gospel starts out Jesus in the temple looking at the treasury. Y'all go check me on all of this. It doesn't actually record him leaving the, uh, the temple. And in Luke chapter 21, Jesus says something different than he says in Matthew and Mark, in Matthew 24 and Mark chapter 13. In Luke 21, Jesus says this. He says to the Jews, he says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded, he says to the people there, get out of Dodge. But in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel, which speaks of during the tribulation period. But he warns a greater number of people in Luke 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, you need to leave. And many, listen, many people who lived in A.D. 70 were warned by the Lord and they fled when Rome surrounded Jerusalem. And many, especially believing Jews, were spared. Because they got out of Dodge, because Jesus warns. You follow me? Now, here's what Jesus actually says. He says that when you see the fig tree and all the trees, then know that it's, it began to bloom, then, then you know summer's near. What is Jesus saying? When you see all these things, not just Jerusalem becoming a nation, that's a key part of it. We can't have an end time scenario without Jerusalem. But there's more that Jesus gave us. Not only when you see Jerusalem become a nation, that kind of has to be there. But when you see false Christ arrive, and we've seen them and we still see them. When you see nation rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. When you see wars and rumors of wars, which as soon as Israel's becoming a nation, we're seeing World War I and World War II and wars all over the place. And now we got rumors of wars because everybody's scared of the nukes, but we still got rumors of wars, right? And stuff popping up. When you see... Famines and pestilence and adverse earthquakes in diverse places. We've seen the increase in earthquakes. We've seen famines. We've seen pestilences. Pestilences are plagues. Even this year, we've seen it with coronavirus. But most people are not even paying attention to the fact that locusts have devastated the agriculture in more than one country this year, creating famines. It's almost like we're blinded because Satan's got his puppets doing stupid stuff that's got us all distracted. So he says, when you see all of these things, look up because you know it's drawing near. You follow what I'm saying? We're the only generation of the church that have seen all of these things. And so the Lord warns of the things to come after. And this is why I love the Lord Jesus. He wants us to at least know how to discern the times and know how we need to be living. Because when we're discerning the times and we're focused on what the Lord told us and what's going on and what the Lord is doing, it causes us to live the way we're supposed to live. Do you follow what I'm saying? And all I'm saying to you is we're living in the times there's no other generation of the church. If you go back just 100 years, we didn't even have Israel. We didn't even have the ability to travel and, and do things at the magnitude that we have now. And scholars had jacked up their commentaries because they didn't take scripture literally. 
That's why most of the older commentaries, as I teach through the book of Revelation, I have to put on the shelf because now, as I've told you, that more prophecy has been fulfilled, we can look back with clear eyes and see that, you know what? They missed it because they didn't see Israel. They spiritualized the scriptures and tried to apply it to the church. And God is never done with Israel because if he's done with Israel, then he's not faithful. Okay, so that means that all his scripture is going to fall into place exactly the way he said it, no matter how we feel about it or what we even see. You follow what I'm saying? So that means that we're the only generation that can look and say, we see, we've seen all of these things within a very short period of time. So you got 1,800 years of the church, 18 plus 100 years of the church, going into the 1,900 year of the church, and all of these things get fulfilled. And we're about to celebrate the 2,000th year of the church within the next 20 years. And so what I'm saying is we're living wonderful times. But here's the thing. We don't know when the Lord is coming because him coming for us is imminent. That can happen at any time. No prophetic signs need to happen before Jesus comes for his church. So knowing that Jesus could show up any time and we live in the only time in the history of the church where we can say we've seen all of these things, then the question I have for you is then how should you be living now? And what should your urgency be about not only getting your life right, your spiritual house, and not walking and living in sin, and how should you be speaking to your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your cousin, your Aunt Sue, your, your, your coworker, or whoever, who you know doesn't know Jesus Christ, but you haven't really wanted to offend them, but now you live in a time where, yeah, but, uh, I, you know, I see I see what's coming, and I don't have time to really so much care about maybe offending them a little bit. I'm going to do it in love, but I, I probably need to make a phone call. How many of you know that you probably need to make a phone call? You probably need to write a letter. You probably need to send a link to a Bible teaching. You probably need to sit down and, and, and invite them over for dinner and speak to them and pray with them. Or, or it, nothing else, you probably need to be praying for the people that come across your heart and your mind. If you knew we only had 50 years left, maybe, and you were a young person, if you thought we only had 10 years left, I'm not saying we do, y'all. Please do not misquote me. I'm going to edit this so nobody misquotes me because I'm not, I'm not naming no times because Jesus says no one know the day or the hour, only my Father in heaven. Jesus says, I don't even know when the Father's going to tell me to, to come and get you. But if you thought it was close, what would you do differently? Now, I have to tell you this. It was probably three to four months ago, right before the lockdown, one Sunday morning, I made this comment. I said, um, I said that if, if you would take your relationship with Jesus seriously and you would get into the word and begin to pray and spend time with him, you wouldn't need, listen, you wouldn't need to go to counseling in a pastor's office. I mean, anybody remember me saying something like that? I probably said it more than once. And, and that is so true. Here's the thing that I believe needs to happen more than ever, because here's what I'm doing as a pastor. Listen, as I close. As a pastor, I feel a sense of urgency because it's like this. When I know I can't be with my children and we got to drop them off somewhere, they got to catch a bus, they got to go on some trip, they got to do something, and we can't be with them, do you know what I do? We sit down and we go through everything. This is what you do. This is what you watch out for. This is, you be careful with this. You make sure you do this. Anybody ever, ever do stuff like this with your children? Yeah, because you love them. You know, you can't be with them, so you want to prepare them for everything that they may deal with. Okay, so let me say this. What if we couldn't meet like this uh, at some point? Now, if I had said this six months ago, you would have thought I was crazy. But now you understand what I mean, right? What if we couldn't meet like this anymore? 
What if it, was, uh, it became illegal because the Christian church is being blamed for stuff? You know, how many of you know through Bible history, uh, through the history of the church, that they used to persecute the church because they called us cannibals? Why? Because we, we eat the, the bread and drink the cup and we say it's the body and the blood of Jesus. It's not really the body and the blood of Jesus. It's symbolic. We know that. But the world thought that we were cannibalists and they persecuted us. We used to have what's called love feast in the Christian church. The world thought that there was something going on at the love feast, and so they persecuted the church. You follow how quick things can change. So what I'm saying is, what if we couldn't meet? Then as a pastor, I feel a sense of urgency to warn you more and more. The Bible says exhort each other more and more as we see the day approach. I think that as a minister of the gospel, which means not just me, but you all, because if you have the Spirit of God and you have the Scriptures and He's called you to, to be a disciple... I think there's a sense of urgency that the church should have for sharing God's truth with everyone that we come across in the times that we live in. Because either way you look at it, time is short. You know, I'm 47 years old, so time is short. Either way I want to look at this thing, you know, you know, 50 years, whether the Lord comes back or he tarries and I just grow old. The Bible says that, you know, some men just wax old and die. You know, that's what the Old Testament says. It just happens. It's life. Amen. We know that. What should our urgency be now? Should we be caught up in what the world is doing, following the lead of those who don't have an eternal solution for what they're doing, or should we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him? So I want to just put that before you today. We need to turn to the Lord. And we need, to, we need to be very, very calm, very loving, but very sincere in our conversations with other people who don't know him. See, the church has no luxury any longer to assume, well, somebody who has the gift of evangelism will do that work. Or, well, you know, maybe I can just invite them to church. Well, you couldn't have said that a month ago, could you? Six weeks ago, you couldn't have said, I'll just invite them to church. You could say, well, I'll give you a link, log into this and watch the the live stream, but that's about all you had, you know? Yeah, it's time for us to be who we were called to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today, Lord, for, for your love for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as we go through this chapter and the rest of this book, Lord, we we're so thankful that because of your promise, because of what you've done, Lord, we get to watch chapters 8 through uh, the beginning of 19 with you in heaven where we will rejoice and celebrate our time with you. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray and I thank you for the people who are here in this room as they go out today that you would be with them throughout their week, uh, wherever it is that you would uh, lead them, Lord God, uh, in the marketplaces, Lord, in in, in their jobs, uh, whatever they're doing, Lord God, that you would be with them, that you would quicken them at times, Lord God, that you would give them at the very moment, Lord, not, 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 don't let them put pressure on themselves. Let everybody in this room, Lord, be free with the gospel. Lord, that it would just come by the Spirit. You would bring back everything that we need to know and the times when we need to share it. Lord, let them realize that that's your truth and rest in that and by faith trust you in that, Lord God, that we would all be bold to share that. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And until we meet again, we say, Jesus, thank you and amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.